Good morning, church. My name is Tim Davis, and our Bible reading this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I'll just give you a few moments to open up your devices, or you can follow along on the screen. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And today we're going to conclude our series in the book of James with a sermon titled Relationship with God. And next week, hard to believe, is the first Sunday in Advent. And we'll be starting a new series in the book of 1 John called True Love, which will pick up right where we leave off today. I want to start this morning by having us think about the context, the predominant context for the book of James and many other New Testament books and letters. And it's a word that describes not just their context, but also, it turns out, our context. And the word is Gnosticism. What English word is derived from the same root word here in Gnosticism? Or knowledge, gnosis, meaning knowledge, right? And Gnosticism, uh, Fleming Rutledge says, uh, represents all the various forms of Gnosticism, she says, are grounded in the belief that privileged spiritual knowledge is the way of salvation, that really when we're talking about Christianity or other, any other belief form, it's all about what you know. It's about you having a healthy, functioning brain and your ability to understand mentally what's happening. And she breaks it down in three ways. She says, it's an emphasis on spiritual knowledge. You see the word gnosis in the word knowledge. Number two, a hierarchy of spiritual accomplishment, again, referring to what you know, that there's a kind of educational scaffolding that happens, the layers of insight you gather over time, allowing you to feel that you're accomplishing spiritual things. But in reality, it's all just happening in your brain. 
And as a result of that emphasis on what you know, there's an automatic de-emphasizing of what you do and how you live. So a devaluation of material, physical life, and a corresponding avoidance of ethical struggle in this material world. And I really see this play out in my life as well. When I'm listening to a sermon, I listen to several sermons every week. I'm a bit of a sermon junkie. And sometimes I have one of these insights and aha moments, and I feel like I just have arrived at a truth I've never known before. It's, there's a convergence and a clarity, and sometimes, like when I'm running or when I'm rowing, I'll be listening to a talk or something, and I'll just have a moment, and I'll just start weeping, like uncontrollably. Some emotion will take over, and there I am experiencing great intimacy with God. I feel very Christian. I feel very much connected to the divine. And then I come home and my life is the same. But it doesn't matter because I've had this experience. I've had this feeling in me. Some of you have experienced this in movies. You know, you have a good cry, a wonderful storyline of sacrifice or love or some truth is uh, clearly portrayed for you in a movie and you just feel so good after you cry. How many of you have felt that before? That's a form of Gnosticism, us believing that we are something because we've had a mental experience. You can walk away from church and feel really good, but yet the way you treat others is exactly the same. Your relationship to money is exactly the same and yet you feel better. That's functional Gnosticism. I think very few of us, few Americans, would identify as uh, somebody who is a Gnostic. And yet I think most of us live this way in some way, shape, or form. And here's why it's so contrary to uh, the gospel. She says, in Gnosticism's portrayal of salvation, the power to redeem, God's power, has been subsumed into our capacity for being redeemed. Therefore, the crucifixion becomes unnecessary. If it is spiritual knowledge that saves us, we don't need God to die for us. We just need the right teacher and a functioning brain. When I was in seminary in grad school learning how to be a pastor, uh, this was a huge question that I had to deal with. Why did Jesus have to die for the truth that you're about to preach? Why didn't Jesus come to earth with a teaching? Why didn't he just come with some answers to our questions? Why can't the Bible filled with answers just be the end-all, be-all of how human beings are saved? Because at the end of the day, what saves us is not what we know or what we think or what we believe, or even, dare I say, what we do. But it's what Christ has done on the cross. Amen. There is something that was accomplished by something and somebody wholly other than us. That's Christ. He did something, and that paved a way for humanity to be saved in a way that's not dependent on humanity. It's the emphasis is on the work of Christ, not on us. That's why Gnosticism and the cross cannot coexist. 
And you see this in the book of James. You think about how James is so uh, keen on pointing out that it's not about what you believe or what you know. He says even demons know, and they shudder, but it doesn't matter because it's not by knowledge that we are saved. You see Paul, the Apostle Paul in his letters, battling the same Gnosticism in the minds and the culture of his audiences. It's not about what you know. You are saved by the gracious work of somebody other than you. It's not that you understand what was done or how it was done, but the fact that it was done. That's what matters. Your awareness of it, your appreciation of it is, by comparison, irrelevant. It's the frosting on top, but it's not the cake. You know what takes the cake? The cross. That's what these writers are trying to emphasize. Because the alternative, Gnosticism, is emphasis on knowing and believing. And if you emphasize what you know, you naturally de-emphasize how you live. I think about how Americans play this out, especially over the last two years in our political season here in America. Don't you see this functional Gnosticism at play? Think about the judgment, the distance we've created, the abandonment of relationships and people based on what you believe you know. You have taken what your value or your principle or your view and said, if you don't agree with me, you are less than human. You are worthy of abandonment. You are worthy of judgment. I will uh, cause your stock to drop to such low numbers that you're no longer important. We have seen the mudslinging, the demonizing, the caricaturizing, how we take one small part and make that the whole picture of what a person is. When does a human being stop becoming a human being? I'll tell you, if you are a functional Gnostic, that's what you do all day long. You believe what you know, what you understand to be superior and salvific, and you believe, you know what, if you don't believe this, you're damned. And we're not just thinking about this in religious terms, we're talking about this in the political conversation. Isn't it amazing how divided our country is? How much we are functional Gnostics? When does a human being stop becoming a human being unworthy of love and connection? When does that happen? Well, it's been happening for two years, and the church has been tempted, and we've all got mud on us, and we're sliding down along with the rest of America. Growth in knowledge is not the same as growth in your person. You having great feelings about a particular value or a belief or even about God is not the same as you being a godly person. You cannot be justified by what you know. You cannot be 
justified by what you believe. Your point of view will not save you, does not make you a righteous person. Your faith, your hope is in Christ alone. He is your righteousness. And underneath the shadow of the cross, we all live. You ask yourself, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't Jesus have just given us some knowledge about who to vote for? About what policies to back? Why didn't Jesus just do that? That's all we seem to care about anyways. And it's because that doesn't work. The gospel at its core, it's not about what we learn. It's not about how we think differently now. All that's just icing on the cake. But the gospel at its core is about the cross of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross. That's really all there is. I want to share with you one of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen. He was a Yale philosophy professor, uh, incredibly accomplished uh, academic, written many books, but uh, towards the... uh, uh, you know, second half of his life, he abandoned uh, all of his accolades and uh, he found himself in a community, a special community in Canada, working with mentally disabled people. And the last book that he was writing is called Adam, God's Beloved. And it's the story of one of these mentally handicapped uh, people that he took care of in Canada. Uh, and Adam is severely developmentally challenged, he couldn't speak. He had frequent seizures. He could barely move. He was a totally dependent person. And I would say he was a totally dependent human being. And Henry Nouwen says this. Could Adam pray? Did he know who God is and what the name of Jesus means? Did he understand the mystery of God among us? For a long time, I thought about these questions. For a long time, I was curious about how much of what I knew Adam could know and how much of what I understood Adam could understand. But now I see that these were, for me, questions from, quote-unquote, below, questions that reflected more my anxiety and uncertainty than God's love. God's questions, the questions from, quote-unquote, above were, can You let Adam lead you into prayer? Can you believe that I am in deep communion with Adam and that his life is a prayer? Can you let Adam be a living prayer at your table? Can you see my face in the face of Adam? Could Adam have been loved by God? Did God love Adam? What level of consciousness did Adam have about God's love for him? Was he a Methodist? Was he a Presbyterian? Was he Armenian? Was he Reformed? Was he congregational in his polity, or was he more Presbyterian and elder-driven? What did Adam understand? What was his brain like? 
Is it possible that without Adam being able to fully understand how salvation works, that he be saved anyway? Is it possible? You answer this question for yourself. What did Adam know? Adam was fully human. Adam was a creature made in the image of God. There's value and worth to his life, regardless of his knowledge. And he was deeply in communion with God, who saw Adam's life as a prayer. Every time he struggled, God responded in love. Every time he had a seizure, God is there. Every time he didn't speak, God spoke blessing over him. Adam was the object of God's love. Regardless of his views or what he understood, And what James is saying, more than the nitty-gritty, the the tactics of how to pray for each other, which is how a lot of people can mistakenly understand James 5, it's really about James closing out the whole of his book, really addressing this idea of Gnosticism. It's James saying, your relationship with God, the vertical relationship, which we will call prayer today, your prayer, it plays out horizontally in your relationships with one another. It's not about what you know. It's not. It's about Jesus. And the way you express the love of Jesus to each other is by your ability to love each other. And if you cannot do that, you don't understand God's love for you. And so we are tempted on the one hand to be Gnostic and to believe that what we know is how we are saved. And then James says it's not about what you know, but it's really about how you live, which gives expression to the work of Christ in you. And so for today's sermon, we'll frame James 5 this way, and we will say that Christianity is relational, not transactional. God is in covenant with us, regardless of how mature we are, regardless of what we know or what we have done, he is in us and he is with us and he is before us. And this relationship that we have with God plays out in our relationships with one another. Matthew 22, 37 to 39 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This little phrase, the second is like it, it means not that it's just a, an additional command, but it's, it's called a, um, Hebrew parallelism. And whenever a, a Hebrew author repeats the same idea in a different way, it's just emphasizing the exact same idea. And so what Jesus is saying here is the, the only command you need to know, the only person you'll ultimately have loyalty to and push comes to shove is God. Nothing else matters. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the entirety of what is required of the human being towards God. And then he says the second is like it, meaning 
the way you know you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is found, is made visible in your relationships with one another. How you love each other is the direct evidence, the visible evidence of how you are doing with God. And John, in 1 John 4.20, says a similar thing. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, this is the opposite of how I like to think about it. I really prefer to think of it as I love God, but I don't like you. God is easy to love because he's perfect and he's loving, but I don't know about you. But John says it's the opposite, that it's actually easier to love people because you can see them. It's really, really challenging and difficult and weird to try to love God because you can't see him. And so the way you can know how I'm doing with God is ask me how I did with Susie this week. Because if, I, if my love and relationship towards Susie was like an eight this week, my relationship with God trails a little bit behind because loving God is a little bit harder. So I'm like at a six with God. If I'm at a 10 with Susie, I'm like at an eight with God. And it always follows that order. And the world knows this, right? And Jesus said this. The way the world will know that I actually exist is if you love one another. That was his final prayer. It's called the priestly prayer in the book of John. If you hate one another, you don't love God. You can't love God because loving God is the easier thing. I mean, it's the harder thing. Loving each other is the easier thing. So James here, in his version, says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the word prayer is the operative verb in today's passage. It appears eight times. It's the key verb. And that describes your relationship with God, your vertical relationship, your quote-unquote spirituality. But the, the way you practice move beyond Gnosticism to the practice of that relationship with God is found in this phrase, one another. Your practice of one another. Your connection to one another. Your love towards one another. A fascinating Bible study you can do is the one another's of the Bible. Jesus talked a lot about the one another's. New Testament writers wrote a lot about the one another's. The one another piece of our faith is the key piece that moves Christianity out of Gnosticism into actual spirituality. Christianity is not a belief system as much as it is a practice. And the way it's practiced primarily is in the area of relationships. In the context of James chapter 5, in the midst of pain and suffering, the prescription is both prayer and one another. 
You pray, you seek God, but the way you practice that seeking of God is towards one another. <clears throat> one another. We'll focus on the first part of verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. How do we practice this one another part of the gospel? Confession of somebody else's sin is the foundation of our relationships to one another. True or false? It's false. It's a trick question. Okay. Confession of your own sin is the foundation of our relationship to one another. True or false? True. This is the basis of how we are to relate to one another. This is so, such an interesting insight for me because I really enjoy confessing other people's sins more than my own. I really do like gossiping better than confessing. It is. I feel better. I would like to sit down with you and identify who our common enemy is so that based on our shared hatred, we can feel stable in our own relationship. That's my preferred MO. That way... I can keep my spirituality separate from my practice of that spirituality. It's easier that way. It's more executable. It really is. But James says, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't lead you to life. If you have confession of other people's sins and general commentary on the world, James says, these have little to do with healing. These have little to do with intimacy. It will not give you life. But if you are willing to confess your sin to one another and make that the basis of how we relate to each other, then connection is the fruit of confession. You're going to be connected to each other. I took this uh, idea really to heart when I was first starting ministry 20 years ago. I asked myself, how do I be a pastor? What kind of pastor do I want to be? And I remember the day I made the decision that I was going to share from my weaknesses. I remember that day. I've been trying to perfect it ever since. You know, I used to overshare all the time. And... So many times after a sermon, I just would feel so weird and awkward. And then everybody else would feel weird and awkward for Susie. <laughs> there was a time I talked about my sex life from the pulpit. Like, not like prolonged, but like I made like, like a two-sentence statement about it. And I just felt all of the energy just drain out of the room. And these women just turned and tried to find Susie in the room to check in on her to see how she's doing. I wouldn't take it back. Because it's part of my journey to understand how to lead with confession of my sin. Another decision I made related to this was I decided I'm not going to share stories of heroes of the faith. I grew up hearing stories about people who have amazing faith. Like, I got so tired in high school of hearing about Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott. So tired of these missionaries. Like, stop. I can't ever be Jim or Elizabeth. I just wanted to leave the faith because I couldn't be like them. 
And so I decided, you know, it's not actually helpful for me to preach the gospel that way because it sort of creates a law that nobody can keep. And there's so much nuance and complexity to biographies and stories that I don't get to share in the headline versions that we hear through sermons. I decided to just leave them out altogether if possible and just share stories from my own life to create connection. And over the 20 years in ministry, I really have found that sharing my weaknesses, leading with confession, has built connection with people. My vulnerability has created connection to people in a way I never imagined possible. The great fear for me was, if I lead with my weakness, I'll be rejected. And for some reason, I have found the exact opposite to be true. And now you've heard me preach for four years. Tell me if that's true for you. Does confession of sin lead to connection? Does confession of sin lead to healing? Does it give validity to the love of God that you claim to have in your heart? And I would say, of course it is. It's hard, but I believe it's worth it. James says, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? And the answer, of course, is yes. We are all suffering. We're all sick in some way. And he says, now, confess that suffering. Confess the pain. Confess the sickness. And not only confess it, but move towards other people's pain point, not away from it. I um, uh, have led and taught and trained small group ministry leaders and uh, this for uh, many years. And I would have to say one of my uh, firmest rules about how to be a small group is to de-emphasize the study part and really emphasize the sharing part. Because so often churches and Christians think, you know, in small group settings, we have to study the Bible. But there's been too many times when people walk away from the small group meeting not having connected to each other because no weaknesses were shared and you feel kind of empty. Your brain feels okay, but your heart feels drained. It doesn't feel full of energy and life. And so I really encourage people to share. The direct opposite of confessing your sin, you know what that is? It's secrets. Now, I want to make a distinction between secrets and privacy. We have lots of things we should be private about. I don't want to know about all your private matters, but it's different than actively managed secrets. I really have seen the destructive power and the segregating power of secrets. Because when you have an active secret in your life, it causes you, the opposite of confessing, is you curve away from others. And you curve around your secret, which has become your little precious. Secrets create distance. It raises the anxiety in your community because your behavior changes, even to simple questions like, how are you? And you don't know how to answer that. I have observed as a pastor, being on the receiving end of other people's confessions over the years, I've noted that people who have a secret tend to talk a lot about nothing. And it's their way of curving away from people and curving around their secret. They're like, sort of like the oyster that's got a little irritant in their soul, and they have to keep covering it up with words that don't matter. 
I have a three-part self-check that I do on a regular basis. I probably do this almost every day. And this is just, for me, a good way to take care of myself and, making sure, and make sure that the be very best of myself can show up in um, uh, two relationships. The first is energy. I ask questions about my energy. I say, Peter, how's your energy level? Are you tired? Are you hungry? What's going on with you on that front? The second question is, are you present? Are you distracted? Are you in the past? Are you in the future? What are you thinking about? Are you here? That's my second question. And the third one is, what secrets are you managing right now? What's something you need to talk to Susie about or your staff about or yourself about? And I do this check on myself, and I did this last night. You know, I do this every Saturday before I show up on Sunday. What's going on, Peter? How much sleep do you need? What do you need to eat? What do you need to confess? It's a great little test that helps me build connection with each other. King David in Psalm 32 says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. When you find yourself confessing other people's sins, it's probably more or less a cover-up for some sin in you. First John in chapter 1, again, says a similar thing. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no way that you can read the Bible and separate out this idea of relationship with each other and our relationship with God. You cannot Divorce these two things. You cannot even think about them separately. And if you are a church person, know this. There's not one person in the world who does this either. They all look at how you relate to other people and judge your relationship with God by it. And the Bible invites them to do so. John here says, if you don't confess your sin, if you say you have no sin, if you say you're fine, that you're in the right then fellowship with each other breaks and fellowship with God is broken as well. Because the basis for connection to each other is the confession of your own sin. It's the confession of my own sin. That's the only way this works. Life is found in one another. Healing is found in one another. Prayer is validated in our relationship with one another. Now, this is really a hard truth for me to admit, as simple as it sounds, because I feel like a loser if I admit that I'm dependent on other people. There's a part of me that wants to say, it doesn't matter. I don't have to be at peace with everybody. You're just screwed up. You're messed up. You're thinking the wrong things. You've offended me. You've insulted me. You've... I just want to be able to do that. I want the right, I want to reserve the right to stay mad at you. I just do. I 
I had a really hard, hard thing happen between me and my mom a couple of weeks ago. We haven't talked yet. I feel so weird. I feel so funky in here. Like, just things are off. It's just out of whack. I can't seem to shake it. I just feel like I can't take enough showers to wash off this weird film that I feel over my soul because my relationship with my mom is disrupted. But I don't want to call her. She's in the wrong. (laughs) You know what's hard? It's hard for me to admit that it bothers me, that I'm affected by this, that all of the other areas of my life have been tainted by this little thing that's happened. But it's true, because the way God designed us is to be the body politic, to be connected to each other, to be in relationship with each other. So the Bible says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Do whatever you can to be at peace, because everything else is found on this. If relationships aren't right in your life, everything is shaking. Is it possible for us to be in relationship to each other in our political climate? Is it possible for us to have different opinions and views and be in relationship to each other? Is it? I've learned this past week that we have a huge spectrum of voters in our church for all different kinds of reasons. And everybody has their own reasons. They don't want a theory on why they voted for who and what and why and how. Can we be friends? Is it possible? When the church was hiring me four and a half years ago, it was a huge risk for this church. When Tim Crow first emailed me, little introductory summary about this church and the situation here and why they were reaching out to me. And then I was on the phone with a group conference call with the search team. I was meeting these weirdos for the first time. And my primary question was, why me? What does a church like you, situated in Seattle, on Mercer Island of all God-forsaken places, want with me? I am urban. I'm a church planter. I am deep in the culture, hopefully not too of it, but in it. I am younger. I am non-white. You sure you want me? I feel very other than you. I'm from the East Coast. I'm direct. I'm confrontational. You want me? How is this going to work out? I felt like I was being invited to be the organ that's being transplanted into a body, and then the body is going to reject me. I asked the question, is there room for me and my family here in this church filled with weirdos? Of course, that's my opinion. (laughs) And you have yours. Is it possible? And over the years, I feel the answer that I've received is yes, Peter. We can make room for you. And I've I've observed how much you have had to absorb to have me here how you have paid again and again the cost for my growth as a pastor. You've done this. You've asked the question, do we have to be the same as Peter to be loved by Peter or to be led by Peter or for us to love him? And you answered, no, we don't have to be the same. 
And now I've asked the question too of you. Do I have to be the same as you to be helpful to you? Name one person in the world that's the same as you. At some point, if you get close enough, you experience the otherness of the other. You realize people are very, very different. You will not be su- stop being surprised by who they are. People are quirky. They're inconsistent. There's no unifying theory of the human being next to you. And yet here we are. For me, to grow as a self-differentiating leader, I've had to ask the question, do I have to be the same as you to minister to you? And the answer is no. I practice this every day. Half the time I'm talking to you as a group or in my office or over lunch or whatever the case may be, I just flat out disagree with you. I really think you're wrong. And I think the way you're thinking about your problem and where you're landing is ridiculous. And I think you're worthy of judgment and abandonment. (laughs) But it's not what I do because that's how you think about me. And so we make the choice to love each other and to confess our sin to one another and we experience healing. I ask myself, not am I the same as you, but I ask myself, what's my role? What's my role? And then I work the role rather than working my opinions. And turns out we have way more in common than we are different. And you can connect to me, I can connect to you. And as we lead with confession, there's prayer that happens, the practice of our spirituality, and healing happens. That's the way it was meant to be. So I invite you in our political climate to not get sucked into the vortex of mudslinging and creating otherness and distance with other people, but simply ask the question, what's my role? What is God asking of me? Political opinions and systems and options will come and go, but what will stand the test of time? Who am I? What am I to do? And work your role. Do the thing that brings about healing. Jesus was faced with the same question. These political enemies came to Jesus and they said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Do you remember the Bible story enough to know who was asking the question? It was uh, an attorney asking the question. Who is my neighbor? Delineate this. Draw the line for me. Where are the political boundaries that I am safe to live in? And Jesus told a story of the Samaritan who helped a victim while religious leaders walked right past him. And then the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, was, you be the neighbor. You be the neighbor. The question isn't, who am I obligated to help because they're already like me? But it's no, you be the bridge. Reach out and touch someone based on my love for you. You be neighborly. You be the embodiment of God's love and truth. Without asking, do they belong with me? 
Uh, there's a section in my sermon called Disappointments and Disorientation. I'm going to skip that out. But it has to do with attachment theory and Elijah. And you could read that in my sermon notes. I'm going to get to the conclusion here. So what do we do now? What's our practice of what we've learned today? Um, the word prayer, as I said, appears eight times in the Greek in this uh, segment of verses that uh, we're studying today. It's the most common verb. It's the operative verb. This is what James wants us to practice, prayer. But notice how he wants us to practice it. I love what he says here. He talks about this little thing called oil, and he says, anoint each other with oil, and then pray for one another. And uh, you have to ask the question, what is oil? And you can do a Bible study on oil in the Bible, and you'll learn two things. The first is that Oil always represents the Holy Spirit, represents our vertical relationship with God. But half the time, oil is science. It represents medicine. It's how they treated uh, wounds and how they uh, helped each other to physically heal. And so this idea of being anointed with oil has two functions, spirit and science. It brings together God and people. I love how the visual, the symbol of oil brings together love God and love one another. It brings together faith and science. It makes the intangible also concrete. It's the practice of prayer with one another. Now I want to invite you to close your eyes. And I want to invite you to a time of prayer with God from your hearts. God, you command us to pray, and so I want to invite us to do that. I'd like us to think about um, what this means for us, things that we need to confess and repent of, ways that we have created distance with each other instead of drawing close ways that we have moved away from pain points in each other's lives to move towards each other's pain points. As we pray, I want to read a poem called The Avowal, and it's about God's grace, and it says this. As swimmers dare to lie face to the sky and water bears them, As hawks rest upon air, and air sustains them, so would I learn to attain free fall and float into creator spirit's deep embrace, knowing no effort earns that all-surrounding grace. God, here we confess that we are sinners, that it's by your grace that we are able to pray. And it's by your grace that we confess our own sin to one another that we might experience healing in our lives. God, I pray for healing in our nation. I pray for healing in our church. I pray for movement forward towards your kingdom. I pray for you to be made manifest in our church 
through the ways that we love one another. We get a lot of things wrong, but this part we cannot get wrong. We have to figure out how to love one another. Not through silence or avoidance, but through confession of sin. Not through hatred and confrontation, but through confession of sin. For in the confession of sin turned into prayer for one another, there is healing that's promised. For those of us that have been separated, help us to understand how to reattach to one another and to belong together as one body of Christ. May the world know we are Christians by our love. In Jesus' name.